audio because um, there's not much visual happening here. So <clears throat> we are in the book of Ezekiel, book of Ezekiel. And last week we were in chapter 20 and we still had to finish chapter 20. And before we do that, I want to do a quick review of chapter 17 that we covered last week and then the beginning of chapter 20 so we can get into the end of chapter 20 and we see the context there. So let me pray and then we're going to jump right into Ezekiel 17. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we have together. We pray for understanding at this time of this uh, passage and the passages we're looking at. And uh, Lord, we are interested in what you are doing and what you have revealed that you're going to do. And we pray this in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Ezekiel chapter 17. Now, keep in mind, one of the things we have to remember is that the Bible starts out with God the Father ruling and reigning directly over his creation. So when he's creating, he's also exercising his uh, authority, his rulership, his kingship over what he's created. Okay, He makes the rules. And in Revelation... 21 and 22, where we have the eternal state, then again, God the Father rules directly and personally over his creation. And what we're doing in this class is we're studying everything in between to figure out what's happening in between. What is, what is happening leading up to God the Father once again ruling directly and personally over his creation. And so that's what we're doing in the book of Ezekiel. We're going through the prophets here, not looking at everything, but we're looking at some things related to the kingdom. So in chapter 17, you know, we went over that last week. We got this kind of strange riddle at the beginning of the chapter, this eagle going up to the top of a tree and taking a twig out, a sprig out. And then taking it somewhere else. Okay, so we had that strange uh, riddle. Now, verses 22 through 24 of chapter 17 indicate that we clearly have some type of restoration of the nation of Israel. Okay, it, it talks about the Lord will take also one of the highest branches of the cedar, set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain on the mountain height of Israel. I will plant it. It brings forth boughs, bears fruits, becomes a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, so on and so forth. And uh, what is happening here is that the Lord is still using this analogy of a tree. He's not talking about trees. He's using the analogy of a tree. Okay? We know he's not talking about trees because 
After he gives the riddle, he gives the interpretation, and he's talking about real people, uh, real kings there, real people there. Okay, so this is, this is clearly in reference to the nation of Israel being restored. And I would point out in verse 14, particularly, that the nation of Israel is called a kingdom. It's called a kingdom here. Now, for us, the most pressing question is, when will this restoration that's spoken of in verses 22 through 24, when will it take place? Has it already taken place? Has this prophecy been fulfilled? Well, covenant theology, which is not the view we take, it's a different view from ours. Uh, That view of this prophecy says it's been fulfilled in at least one of three possible ways. There's people who say that this was fulfilled in history with the returns uh, to the land under Cyrus, king of Persia, recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. Others will say this was fulfilled at the first coming of the Messiah. And finally, some will say that it's been fulfilled spiritually in the church. Now, there's... In that group, there's no agreement as to which is right or which even is the most likely. They're all over the place there. So we still have to answer the question, well, does this take place in history? Has it taken place in history? Did it take place at the first coming? Does it take place spiritually in the church? So let me just walk through why these don't work, why these interpretations don't work. So those who say that this passage is fulfilled when the Jews return to Israel under Cyrus, but they claim that. Well, this cannot be right. This cannot be the correct view because the sprig or the twig that is taken from the top of the tree refers to an actual descendant of the line of David, a real person who is qualified to be the king of Israel. Uh, But when the Jews returned under Cyrus, there was no Jewish king. Okay? You remember that? When they come back under Cyrus, there is no Jewish king. Instead, they had a Persian governor. A Persian governor. Furthermore, the history of the Jews from 539 B.C. forward can in no way match the description of verses 22 through 24. Just can't do it. So this uh, passage was not fulfilled. This prophecy was not fulfilled when the Jews returned to the land under Cyrus the Persian. Okay, well, what about the first coming of the Messiah? Was it fulfilled then? Well, unlike the first view, this view sees Jesus as the twig taken from the top of the tree in verse 22. We don't have a problem with that, necessarily. 
However, the problem is understanding or then realizing how the Messiah becomes a majestic cedar either during or immediately after his earthly ministry. Okay? How did Jesus' earthly ministry end? What was the what was the really the culmination of the end? His crucifixion and resurrection. Okay? But did he become king of Israel at that point? Did no. No. So it's hard to see how this language and uh, let me get the right verse here in verse 23 of this majestic cedar, how Jesus Christ could be that. Uh, furthermore, how does this view explain that between the ascension and now the other kings and kingdoms of the earth, all the trees there. The trees of the field in verse 24. How does it explain how all the kings and kingdoms of the earth will acknowledge that the Lord is the one who has done this? Think about history. In history, do we see all the kings and kingdoms of the earth acknowledging that the Lord has set up his king to rule the earth. No, they, they don't even most kings and kingdoms don't even acknowledge the Lord. Right. So this view that this was fulfilled at the first coming doesn't actually match history. Doesn't match, match what happened in history. Now, the last view is probably the most popular today, and that's the view that this passage but is fulfilled spiritually in the church. Now, in order to come to that view, you have to spiritualize verses 22 through 24, removing it from its historical context. Okay? The historical context is Ezekiel writing this um, during... Uh, the time of the Babylonian captivity. So he's, he's writing this during that uh, general time period. And so this interpretation that this is spiritually fulfilled in the church not only does violence to verses 22 through 24, but it actually does violence to the entire first part of the chapter. In other words... In the first part of the chapter, you have to take it as unhistorical, that it's not actually referring to historical people so to interpret this as the church in, in any way. And, of course, um, when you start spiritualizing things, where do you stop? You know, if you can spiritualize one thing, you can spiritualize the next. There's no stopping or control. So this view that this was fulfilled spiritually or is being fulfilled spiritually by the church uh, does not represent a clear, consistent, and contextual interpretation of the passage, and it doesn't match history. So those views are wrong. So if all these interpretations is wrong, which one is right? Which one is right? We have to interpret this chapter literally, plainly, naturally. That means we understand the riddle as a riddle. 
A riddle at the beginning is a real riddle. We understand imagery and analogy as imagery and analogy. Furthermore, um, we have to realize that this chapter actually interprets the riddle for us. And so we are guided to accept the interpretation that verses 22 through 24 are about the future second coming of the Messiah when he establishes his kingdom on the earth and makes the kingdom of Israel once again the leading and most prominent nation on the earth. Okay, and we have, of course, other biblical prophecies that speak to this. But we have nothing in history yet that matches it. So we have plenty of biblical prophecies that speak to this kind of thing. And when we look at history, we find that nowhere in history has it been fulfilled yet. So this prophecy of the restoration of the nation of Israel is a yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy. By the way, the, uh, throughout the prophets, you get the language of uh, the branch of David or you know, something like that, a branch from David language that fits right in with the imagery of we, that we see here of this twig, this sprig being taken from the top of the tree. Okay, that's chapter 17. Now turn over to chapter 20, and I just want to kind of review, go over the first part of the chapter before we get to verse 33. We saw in the first part of this chapter, verse 1, that Ezekiel was with the elders of Israel in Babylon on August 14, 591 B.C. Uh, these elders wanted Ezekiel to inquire of the Lord about something. And the Lord says, instead of answering them, he wants Ezekiel to recount the history of Israel's rebellious behavior starting in Egypt. And in recounting this rebellious history, there is a progression of Israel, first being in Egypt, then to being in the wilderness, and finally, to being in the promised land. Remember, we talked about that geographical progression last week. They moved from Egypt to the wilderness into the promised land. In each of these locations, this chapter tells us that Israel rebels. When they're in Egypt, they rebel. When they're in the wilderness, they rebel. When they're in the promised land, they rebel. They rebel over and over and over again. So the pattern that emerges at the beginning of chapter 20 is this. There's an instruction from the Lord. The Lord tells them to do something. Then there is rebellion by the nation of Israel. Then the Lord's intent to destroy them. But then the Lord acts in mercy, which includes Discipline. So this is the pattern. Instruction, rebellion, intention to destroy, but instead of destroying them, God disciplines them. He doesn't destroy them, but he does discipline them. So when they are in Egypt, when they are in Egypt, 
the rebellion was idolatry. Okay, this is in 7, verses 7 and 8. The rebellion is idolatry. God was going to punish them in Egypt. That is verse 8. But for the sake of his name, he has mercy on them. Verse 9. So he has mercy on them. And that he removes them out of the idolatrous atmosphere of Egypt. And he makes a covenant with them, the Mosaic Covenant. He says he's going to give them, in verse 11, he's going to give them his statutes, his judgments, and his Sabbaths. And he gives them for the purpose that they might know that I, the Lord, have set them apart. That the Lord has sanctified them. That's verse 12. Okay? So instead of destroying them, he says, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to give you, we would say, the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant. So now the people are in the wilderness. They have left Egypt. They're in the wilderness. And the rebellion there is described as, in verse 13... They did not walk in my statutes. Okay, remember the Lord gave them the statutes. Now they did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments and greatly profaned my Sabbaths. And we're told here that the Lord is going to consume them. It's going to consume them. It's going to destroy them. But, but he doesn't do that. For the sake of his name, he spares this generation, but he's not going to allow them to enter into the land flowing with milk and honey. See that in verse 15 and 16. Okay, so they have his judgments, his statutes, his Sabbaths, but they don't follow them, and so he's going to kill them. And uh, that's his intention, is to kill them. But then he says, but I acted for the sake of my name. And then he said, I'm not going to kill you, but you're not getting into the land of milk and honey. Okay, so now we're in the promised land. We're in the promised land. And God no longer is talking to the Exodus generation. He's talking to their children. To their children. See that in verse 21. And so the rebellion here is by the second generation of the Israelites. These are the ones who entered the land. The rebellion here is described as they did not walk in my statutes, nor were careful to observe my judgments. They profaned my Sabbaths. At this point... God is going to consume them as he had intended to do to their parents in the wilderness. But for the sake of his name, verse 22, I think, verse 22, he's going to scatter them. Instead of destroying them, he's going to scatter them among the Gentiles. So the connection that is drawn between this review of the history of Israel is that the elders of Israel who are in Babylon with Ezekiel at the present time are just like the Jews from Egypt to that time. 
They are rebellious people. And just like God did not destroy Israel and Egypt and the wilderness and the promised land, he's not going to destroy them now in Babylon either. In fact, in verse 32, it tells us that uh, God's going to do something that this is not going to be an issue anymore. He's not going to let them do what they want to do. And so now we come to verses 33 through 34. And uh, this explains what the Lord is going to do. And as a part of this explanation, we have the restoration of Israel. So verse 33. This this, This whole section explains to us the gathering of Israel, the judgment of Israel, And the bringing them back into the land. Verse 33. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury or with wrath poured out, I will rule over you. Now think about that verse real quick. Anything in that verse stand out to you? Okay, maybe maybe I can give you some hints here. So it says here, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Those are phrases that he uses of bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. Okay, so he brings them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34. It says here in verse 34, Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great terror according to all that the Lord God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So, mighty hand, outstretched arm is a description of what God did for the children of Israel in Egypt. Uh, Why don't you just turn over to chapter 5 now, since we're already in Deuteronomy. Look at chapter 5, verse 15. Chapter 5, verse 15. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand, And by an outstretched arm. Okay, so we see that these two phrases are connected with what the Lord did in the Exodus. Okay, now we're back in Ezekiel. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 20. So surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm... And with what poured out? Fury 
or that's the word wrath, fury or wrath poured out. I will rule. That word rule is the word for being a king, acting like a king. I will rule over you. So the Lord, with a mighty hand and outstretched out arm, is going to pour his wrath out on Israel as a king rules over his people. So the same Lord, with the same power that freed Israel from the Egyptians, this same God and power is now going to be used to rule over them. Verse 34, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you were scattered with a mighty hand. See that phrase again? With a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out. So as a part of what the Lord's going to do, he is going to gather Israel from all the places and people to which they were scattered. Now, look back. Uh, look back to verse 23. Look back to verse 23. This is the children that have rebelled. Second generation. Verse 22 says, Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. Also, I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them among the, the countries because they had not executed my judgments but had despised my statutes. So I just want you to notice, here's the scattering. Okay, the scattering. But in verse 34, we have the gathering. Okay, so verse 34 is acting like the opposite of verse 23, a reversal of verse 23. In verse 23, the Lord says, I'm going to scatter you among the nations. Verse 34, the Lord says, I'm going to gather you back from the nations. And, uh, of course, this gathering... Here is not necessarily a great thing because judgment, the wrath of God is being seen here. He says, I'm going to gather you with a mighty hand and outstretched arm with fury poured out. Okay, well, what in the world is this talking about? What in the world is God talking about judgment on the Jews at this point for? Well, look in verse 35 and 36. And I, so notice how many times you have the I will, I the Lord will, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will plead my case with you face to face. Verse 36. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. Uh, Israel is not going to be gathered to the land, but rather they're being gathered to the wilderness where the Lord is going to confront them face to face. 
So this is prior to the children of Israel entering the land. When they enter the land, that's a sign of blessing, right? Going into the promised land is a sign of blessing. This goes along with the wrath. He's not going to take them into the land and then judge them there. He's going to do this all outside of the land. He's going to take them into the wilderness. The phrase here that says, so I will plead my case, means I will judge. I will judge. It's not, I'm going to accuse you of something. It's not, I'm going to bring charges against you. It is, I will judge you. And I got a note here about a bunch of Hebrew stuff, but I'll keep on going. Um, Similarly, to God taking Israel out of Egypt, so, so similar to God taking Israel out of Egypt and bringing them to the wilderness before they entered the promised land, God is going to gather the nation of Israel together and bring them to the wilderness before they go where? Into the promised land. So he's gathering them, and there's some type of judgment is connected to this gathering in the wilderness. Verse 37 gives us more of a description of this. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. So the Lord is going to judge Israel here. And I take this that he's going to judge individual Jews here. So while the term you here is plural, this is a plural you. um, The imagery that is used here of a shepherd making his sheep pass under a rod points to individual judgment. An evaluation. If you look at verse 38 real quick, you can see how this looks after it happens. I will purge the rebels from among you. So these people, the ones who are rebelling, the rebels, that's individual activity to rebel. So um, back to 37. Uh, the imagery of the shepherd that is used here is the imagery how a shepherd would make sure he has his sheep. So as sheep would enter the sheepfold, the shepherd would take his staff and he would use it in a way so that each sheep would have to pass in front of him. This is my sheep. Ah, that's not. He's got to go somewhere else. I'm counting my sheep. He's going to make sure the right ones get into the fold. So there's not going to be any illegitimate sheep, any sheep that don't belong him to him. That's the imagery that is being uh, used here. Okay, this is kind of similar a little bit to the separation of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, but it's not the same thing. Okay, it's not the same thing. That's talking about the judgment of the nations. This is talking about the judgment of Israel. But the Lord's going to make sure the right sheep enter uh, the fold. And so he's going to make them pass under the rod. Then he says, I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. What covenant 
What covenant do you think is being referred to here? Keep in mind, this is talking about a time when all of Israel has been gathered together. They've been gathered to the wilderness. They're undergoing this evaluation by the Lord and that he's judging them. They're going through this separation where he's picking out the true sheep from those who aren't his. And then he says, I'll bring you under the bond of the covenant. What covenant? Uh, New. The new covenant. Okay? This is the new covenant. Um, it, It can't be the Mosaic covenant. Right? A lot of people think it's the Mosaic covenant. If it's the Mosaic covenant, they're no better off than they were earlier in the chapter when they couldn't keep it. When they couldn't keep his statutes and his judgments and his Sabbaths, they would be in the same boat. So the Lord's got to do something different here to ensure that his sheep enter. And so this is talking about uh, the new covenant. Now, how does this fit into the end times? As this is clearly end times because none of it's happened yet. Israel has not been gathered altogether, nor have they been judged or evaluated. So how does it fit into the end times? I think it fits into the end times like between the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. Okay, there's a time of judgment that's taking place there. Maybe it's right at the end of the tribulation, you know. Won't split too many hairs there. But it's either the end of the tribulation or right after the tribulation, but it's before the kingdom of the Messiah is established. So maybe that's why in the book of Daniel, how it ends, you know, blessed is he who makes it to the 1,335 days. That time period in there after the tribulation, was that 75 days or something like that? Uh, two months and some change. Maybe this is part of what's happening during that time period. Okay, so this is what the Lord's doing. So he's, he's separating out. This is part of the judgment. Now, verse 38. I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I take this as a description of the results of the judgment in verse 37. The rebels are going to be purged from Israel. I would understand them to be unbelievers. People who have not accepted the Messiah, Jesus, as their true king. The rebels are gathered, so they still participate in the gathering, but they do not participate in the entering into the promised land. Okay? So, I take that, that probably what's going to happen to them is that they are going to be judged awaiting the lake of fire. Okay, that's verse 38. Verse 39. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols. So what's happening here? We just had this... uh, Description of what's going to happen at the end of time when the Lord gathers Israel into the wilderness for this 
period of judgment and evaluation to see who are the true believers and who are not. And now you have this phrase, go serve every one of you his idols. Well, what's happening here is the Lord has now gone back to directly addressing the elders, the people of Israel of Ezekiel's day. That's what I think is happening. And he's telling them, as for you, O house of Israel, today, 591 B.C., go serve every one of you his idols. Then verse 39, part B, it says, And hereafter, if you will not obey me, but profane my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. Let me give you another translation of that. I think the New American Standard does a better job here. It says this, but later you will surely listen to me. And my holy name you will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. So I think that what's happening in verse 39 is that the Lord tells the Jews of Ezekiel's day, you go ahead and you do this thing with your idols. But there's going to be a time where you will listen, where you will listen, and you will not profane my name anymore. Okay, so he's, he's reiterating the certainty of what's going to happen in the future. Now, verses 40 through 41, verses 40 through 41. For on my holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there are that there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land shall serve me. There I will accept them and there I will require your offerings and your first fruits of your sacrifices together with all your holy things. I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of all the countries where you have been scattered. And I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. Make sure that's still working. So notice here we have a new location and a new status for Israel. The location is on my holy mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel. On my holy mountain. Okay, that's the location. The status is they're going to serve the Lord. They will serve me and there I will accept them. They will serve and I will accept. They're not, I won't reject them. And then we see that the Lord will be holy in Israel... Will be set apart in Israel before the Gentiles. Now, you remember what was happening in relation to the Gentiles before is that the Lord's name was being profaned before the Gentiles. That word profane, we talked about it last week, it means to uh, treat cheaply, uh, to treat something with less value than it has. And so they were treating the Lord with less value than he has. They were treating the Lord cheaply, like he's just a normal everyday thing. 
But instead of that, he'll be hallowed. That's a word holy, set apart. They're going to treat him like he's special. He's absolutely special. He's distinct from everything else. Before the Gentiles, he'll do this. Okay. Then as we come to verses, I should also say here, notice that we'll get into this a little bit later. That this is going into the millennium. This is going into the messianic kingdom. And what are some things that the Jews are going to do in the messianic kingdom according to these verses? What? Sacrifices. Sacrifices and offerings. Okay, so we shouldn't find that strange when we have the new temple. And it talks about new sacrifices. That will be offered. Okay, verses 42 and 43. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raised my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and your doings with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourself in your own sight because all the evils you have committed. So when all of this happens to Israel and they come into the land, okay, the Lord is doing this in fulfillment of the land covenant, the land covenant that he made with the fathers. All right. We talked about the land covenant a long time ago now, but we talked about how God promised the children of Israel their own land. This is a fulfillment. It's mentioning the fulfillment. We see that because he says, I, when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country which I, I uh, raised my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. He's saying, I promise this to your fathers. I'm going to fulfill that promise for you. Then we see that something that's going to be involved when they, the Jews enter the land is they're going to have this remorse and repentance. They're going to enter the land. They're going to enter the kingdom of the Messiah. And they're going to remember. It's going to remember what they did. They're going to remember how they defiled the Lord. And they're going to shake their head themselves. They loathe themselves in their own sight. So I think this is an expression of the fact that they're going to be, have repentance towards what they did uh, before. That they're going to be sorrowful. They're going to have uh, remorse. So this will be in the millennium. Now verse 44. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake. Not according to your wicked ways nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord. So we end here with the Lord acting gracious and merciful to them. Uh, the Lord deals with the nation of Israel based on his namesake. And uh, I think this is talking about the Lord... Um, putting his name on the promises that he has made to the nation of Israel. So when it says, for my namesake, it's talking about the Lord's reputation. 
And so the Lord here is saying, I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I promised I would. And I said, I, the Lord, will do this. Okay? And you notice how when the Lord does all this, Israel is going to know the Lord. We're going to know him. Beginning verse 42, then you shall know I am the Lord. Beginning verse 44, then you shall know I am the Lord. So let me conclude here. Uh, One of the things to be aware of in this passage is the similarity between what the Lord is doing here and what he did in the Exodus. Okay, the Exodus from Egypt. Exodus of Egypt. So bring out, go into the wilderness, make a covenant. Okay, so... Because you, you got that type of idea in this passage, some people have called this passage a new exodus, the second exodus, something like that. So in the old exodus, Israel's brought out of Egypt, Israel's taken to the Sinai wilderness, and the Lord makes a covenant with them, right? And that's the Mosaic covenant. And then the Lord takes them to the promised land. In the new exodus, the Lord brings the Israelites out of the nations, not Egypt, but out of the nations. And he takes them into the wilderness. And the Lord makes a covenant with them. The new covenant. And he takes them into the land. So keep in mind those parallel ideas between the exodus from Egypt and the, the uh, kind of exodus that's mentioned here. So in this passage on the restoration of the nation of Israel, we're taken, we start in the time of Ezekiel. And we're taken back to the time of the exodus, up through the time of Joshua, even to the entrance of the promised land. Then we go back to the time of Ezekiel again, and then we shoot forward to the time of Israel's final judgment and then their restoration into the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. A significant point that this passage makes is that it connects historic Old Testament Israel with end times Israel. Okay, This passage lets us know That when the Bible speaks of Old Testament historic Israel and end times Israel, this is the same group of people, the same nation. So Israel doesn't become the church in the end times. Israel doesn't cease to exist in the end times. There's a connection between the Old Testament Israel and the end times Israel. So people who don't recognize that or kind of uh, kind of downplay that or kind of fudge it a little bit, they're wrong. They can't, do, they can't follow this text because this text is clear that they're connected. So we see that the restored kingdom phase of Israel's history begins with judgment. Did you notice that? I tried to point that out. Did you notice that... Their restoration first begins with judgment so that only believing Jews enter the time of the kingdom. That even though the nation has been characterized by idolatry throughout its history, 
The Lord is going to put an end to the, this. The Lord will gather the scattered Jews and bring them into the land in fulfillment of the land covenant. When this happens, all the Jews are going to know the Lord. By the way, can you think of a passage that tells us of the criteria to enter the kingdom? Would you say John 3? Right? John 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. Unless you're born again. And then you go down a little bit further. Verse 15 and 16 tells you about how you become born again. You've got to believe. All right? So these are believers that are going into the kingdom. They've been born again. Now, one of the often overlooked issues concerning these yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies that were given to Israel is how these prophecies relate to the character of God. In this passage, we find that over and over again, the Lord acts based on the sake of His name based upon his reputation that he has declared in front of Gentiles, based upon the promises that he has made and announced to the children of Israel. If we take this, and I don't see any reason why we can't do this, if we take this same type of situation where we see that the Lord is acting based upon his reputation, based on the sake of his name, and you apply that to end times prophecies, then the Lord must fulfill his promises to the very ones he made the promises to. For the Lord to, to fail to fulfill these promises means he's the opposite of verse 44. Look what it says, verse 44. This is really important. Then you shall know I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, for the sake of my reputation, because I said I would do something. I'm not going to deal with you according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings. So think about it. If God was going to deal with Israel according to their wicked ways and their corrupt doings, he wouldn't allow them to go into the kingdom. He wouldn't restore them. He wouldn't bless them. But he says here, I'm not going to do this. I'm not treating you based upon your sin. I'm treating you based upon my namesake, what I have said I have done, my reputation in front of everybody. I'm going to keep my promises to you. So this, is, this has a direct impact. How you view these yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies has a direct impact on what you think about the nature and character of God. Okay? If God doesn't keep these promises, then he's failed to be faithful. He has shown himself to be the kind of God that is profaned among the Gentiles. So he has to keep these. So he's not profaned among the Gentiles. Okay, so the question is, when will this happen? When will this restoration happen? When, when will all this stuff here take place? I have seven points. Okay? It's going to take place 
when the Lord personally purges the rebels from among the, Gent- uh, among the Jews. Okay, when the Lord personally purges the rebels from among the Jews. Has that happened? Has it happened yet? No. No. Number two. This is going to take place when the Lord regathers the Jews. Okay? It's going to take place when the Lord regathers the Jews. Same question. Has that happened yet? How do you know it hasn't happened yet? Because there's more Jews living in New York City than there is in the land of Israel. Okay, I mean, that's, that's not the only answer, but that's a pretty, <laughs> pretty good point. Number three. This is going to take place when the Jews reject idolatry and cease profaning the name of the Lord. The great majority of Jews today are profaning the name of the Lord. And that for all intents and purposes, most Jews are secular. So they're profaning the Lord's name by not worshiping him. Number four. This is going to take place when the Jews start sacrificing and offerings again. And these will be sacrifices and offerings acceptable to the Lord. So when you see that happen, you'll know that this has happened. Is this happening today? Why not? No temple. You got to have a temple. There's no temple. They can't do sacrifices and offerings without a temple. By the way, even in the Gospels, when we talk about Herod's temple, um, how did the Lord treat people as they treated the temple? What was his reaction when he saw how people were treating the temple? Ran them out, right, right. So even in Jesus' day, I think we could probably argue that those sacrifices and offerings weren't acceptable to the Lord, not as a whole. Anyway, I think the priesthood was pretty much corrupt and that even Jesus recognized this in his treatment of uh, cleansing the temple twice. <laughs> right, right, right. Which, which made what they were doing all the more, all the worse, you know. Uh, so number five, number five, uh, we'll know that this has happened when the Lord is hallowed, when he is treated special by the Jews before the Gentiles. This has not happened yet. So the, the, the Jews will say, the Lord, he is our God. The Lord, He is our God. Number six, we will know that this has happened when the Jews are not only regathered, but they're brought into the land. It kind of goes together with point two, but they're, they're actually two separate points. There's the regathering, and then there's the entrance into the land. Number seven, 
Number seven, this will be true when all the Jews know the Lord. When they know the Lord. They don't know the Lord now. So because of these seven things, the fulfillment of this restoration must be seen as yet to be fulfilled. This restoration must still be in the future somewhere. The best explanation as to when this will be fulfilled in the future is at the second coming of the Messiah. So the kingdom of Israel will be restored in the kingdom of the Messiah. And of course, we most often refer to that as the millennium. So this is how this passage connects with the kingdom. It's telling us about really the beginning of the messianic kingdom. Okay, questions. Any questions? Frank. Uh, why would he accept them? So those were sacrifices to atone for sin. And uh, we're not we're not told exactly what these other sac these well, let's call them millennial sacrifices. We're not told exactly what the millennial sacrifices are for, but they're not for they're not for covering sin. Um, so the Old Testament sacrifices not only were used to cover sin, but they were also types. And these types pointed towards Christ. And they were meant to point towards Christ one sacrifice for all sin. Right? So that's happening. So if these Old Testament sacrifices that Leviticus and all that, if they're meant to point to Christ, then do we think it might be possible that in the millennium, Whatever sacrifices and offerings are commanded to be offered, and they are. I mean, this is clearly yet to be fulfilled, and it clearly says there's offerings and sacrifices. Do you think that those sacrifices might point back and say, the sins I committed have already been covered by the sacrifice of the Messiah? So the Old Testament sacrifices, looking forward, they're pointing forward. The millennial sacrifices would then be looking back on what's already been accomplished. So there's a, I don't think there's any real theological problems with that. Uh, right, so very similar to our communion being pointed back. So we know... Since you raised communion, we know the Passover meal is going to be eaten in the millennium, right? Because the Lord says, I'm not going to eat this again until he comes again. So that's going to happen in the millennium. We're, we're going to find out in uh, chapters 33 through the end of the book, which we're obviously not going to talk about tonight. But we're going to find out there. 
that King David himself offers sin offerings and burnt offerings. So, in the millennium, King David himself offers these offerings. Okay? Well, doesn't he know that Jesus died for his sins? Well, sure he does. Sure he does. He's not, he's not doing these sacrifices to point towards Christ. He's doing these sacrifices to point back at Christ and recognize all these sins have already been paid for by this one offering. Um, by the way, that's one of the reasons we know that it's talking about King David as is the prince of Israel and the book of Ezekiel here at the end. It's because he is offering sacrifices. Of course, Hebrews, is it Hebrews 10.12 or 12.10 that tell us Christ offered one sacrifice for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Anyway, it's in Hebrews there. So Christ isn't offering sacrifices anymore. So he's he's not the David of the millennium. Because the David in the millennium is offering sacrifices. Anyway, we'll talk about that next week. What's that? 10-12. So you can look at Hebrews 10-12. Christ offers one sacrifice. And he's done. He's finished. Yes, yes. So, unbelievers do not enter the millennium, but there will be believers who enter the millennium with their mortal bodies, not glorified bodies. They will produce children, and these children populate the the millennium. They are not believers. They're not saved. So you'll have unbelievers in the millennium. So with that in mind, I I would take the sacrifices as evangelistic in nature as well. So they're saying, you know, look, here we're going to the temple. You see those sacrifices? That's pointing back to the one sacrifice that our king made for us. Yeah. And so it's evangelistic in and uh, nature, but it, it does not—it does not in any way take away any sins or anything like that. It, It's—I uh, would take it as purely memorial. Uh, those sacrifices and offerings, and, and you know, the offerings are acts of worship. Not—not not every sacrifice dealt with sin. Okay, not every sacrifice was a was sin involved. You know, some of them were just pure acts of worship to God, where. Where in your act of worship, you were sacrificing something of value to you for the Lord as an expression of how much you valued him. So, what's that? Yes, yeah. Right. 
Right. And, and there's, it does mention in Ezekiel that there's a, it mentions specifically a free will offering, free will sacrifice, which wasn't a sin. It wasn't a sin sacrifice. So anyway, uh, we got a lot to, to go over. Let me close. If we got more questions, we can take them after uh, we turn the video off. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we've had together. And Lord, as we think about these things, uh, we admit to you that sometimes things are not exactly clear in our mind. Uh, but we also confess and acknowledge that uh, however unclear our minds might be, your word is clear. Help us understand it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.